Well, since somehow I managed to lose uh, the sermon notes for the sermon I was going to preach this hour, we're actually moving down to number three, if you have your brochure, so you can put that in your notes wherever you want. <clears throat> the number three uh, had to do with uh, the battle against eluding philosophies, and I'm going to look at that with you here in chapter two primarily. So if you want to open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter two, and uh, I'm, I'm I've been given a full hour here. I don't think I will take that long. So I know that uh, in talking to some of you in between this, here during the break, that a number of you have read my writings in the past to think on these things <clears throat> and so forth, and also realizing that I do this discernment ministry uh, on, the, on a lot of these topics, a lot of different topics. Uh, we're going to be talking about some of the things that, that delude the church, false teachings and so forth. And so we'll probably have about 15 minutes at the end of the message. So if you have questions on what I say at the message or some topics, some issues that I have written on or dealt with or are on your mind even, uh, you, can, uh, you can bring those out. And so most of the things you might bring up, I, I probably have dealt with. If you go on our website, which probably is on one of your literature somewhere, uh, tottministries.org, uh, you'll find there about 250 uh, full articles on different subjects that uh, deal with contemporary theology, contemporary issues and fads and so forth. <clears throat> and, then, um, and then there's about 800 book reviews on there. I've I been reading a book. When I, let, when I went into the ministry, I, I coveted to do one book a week in the, throughout my ministry. And uh, after 50 years, I have been able to do that and a little more by God's grace. And then about, I don't know, 15 years ago or more, I started writing book reviews because people would write me and say, well, what do you think about that book? You read it, but what do you think? So I started writing reviews and that's kind of taken off. So an awful lot of people <clears throat> write me about that and, and appreciate the fact that I'm write, writing reviews of, of difficult books, uh, sometimes bad books, sometimes uh, uh, in-between books, and sometimes good books. And those are all out there. Some of those book reviews are a paragraph or so long. Some are five pages, depending on the book. So you can, you can go to that resource. Uh, I think it'll be helpful to many of you. Uh, if nothing else, it'll keep you from buying books you don't need to buy. And maybe buy a few books that would be helpful as well. So uh, I, I just would mention that to you. <clears throat> the sign-up sheet in the foyer, uh, we sent out a, the articles I write and the book reviews as they come out about, about every week. Um, we, if you are, sign up for that by email, you'll get those as they come out. About every week, every other week, you'll get something. You can throw it away or turn it off or whatever you want to do, but, but if you're interested in that, just sign up and we'll get you signed up. Make sure you write legibly. I, take, I always take these things back to the secretaries and they say, what in the world is this? You know, I can no idea who this is. So we do our best. Who knows where it's going? It could go to anybody, but it's, <laughs> we do the best. So please try to write pretty legibly. Okay, so we're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, I'll, I'll begin with a silly story. You probably heard it. It's one of those preacher stories where uh, there was this young pastor who uh, he started his first church as a Baptist church out in the country, <clears throat> but, and uh, he went to the church. He's all enthused about ministry, serving the Lord, but the people had been in that church for a long time. There wasn't a lot of them, and they weren't too excited about the ministry, and uh, so the pastor was trying his best to get the people to do something around the building. Uh, and so he came up with an idea, let's just paint the, it's a white church, let's paint the building. And, but he couldn't get his deacons, his trustees, nobody to do any work around the church. So he finally just got upset, went out and bought a couple gallons of paint, began to paint the building. 
<clears throat> and so uh, he was doing it all by himself. One of the deacons came by and saw him doing that. He says, what are you doing? Well, I'm painting the building. Well, the, the deacon did not offer to help him. He said, oh, you don't have near enough paint. You'll never be able to paint this building with those two gallons of paint. And after he left, that made the young pastor angry. So he determined he would paint this building with those two gallons of paint. But he couldn't do it. It was, it was clearly not enough. So he began to water down the paint. And as he watered it down, it still was spreading too thinly. And it just, he knew he wasn't going to get it done. He watered it down some more and some more. When he got done, after a while, he, most of the building was painted, but not very well. And then a great thunderstorm came up. And he had to run back into the church, and the rain poured down and washed off everything he'd done. And he went outside, and he sat on a rock, and he was, had his head in his hands. He was crying almost, so discouraged. And the clouds opened up, and a voice from heaven cried out, Repaint, repaint, and thin no more. <laughs> How many of you heard that story before? Well, they don't, they don't get much out here in Nebraska. I, I, I've heard that everywhere. So anyway, so anyhow. Well, if I could take an analogy there of sorts, uh, I do believe the church is being thinned down in so many ways, doctrinally, uh, biblically, and, and so many, we're following so many fads. So many t false teachers are coming along and siphoning off our people and our, and our theologies. Uh, I will talk about this Sunday morning at the, church, at the church here when I preach, but the latest uh, Ligonier Lifeway uh, the, uh, survey that came out for 2022 called The State of Theology found that even evangelicals don't know hardly anything about the Bible. That over half, approximately half of those who claim to be evangelicals, which as Rod said earlier, we're not sure what those are, but they're supposed to be the more conservative Christians in a way. 7% of Americans are supposed to be evangelicals of some stripe. About half of those believe that Jesus Christ was created. He is not fully God. What kind of evangelicalism is that? So what has happened over the, 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 the years is the church has been watered down to such a point that scriptures are so, seldom preached, seldom taught, theology is a dirty word, and our churches don't major on that very often. And we're suffering the consequences of that as a result. So the church is being thinned out. I like what was said about Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon said once his greatest compliment he ever got was from a man who hated him and thought that he was a joke, basically. Here's what the man said. He said concerning Spurgeon, here's a man who has not moved one inch forward in his ministry. At the close of the 19th century, he's teaching the theology of the first century and is proclaiming doctrine current in Nazareth and Jerusalem in the first century. And Spurgeon said that's one of the greatest compliments he's ever received. He was preaching the same message Jesus preached the same message Paul preached, the same messages in the Bible, he's not caught on to all the fads. Hallelujah. And hallelujah, exactly right. I'd love to have people say that about me, that I'm preaching exactly the, what, the sound words that we ought to retain. So how wonderful if our critics could say that about us. So we're talking about a man of God in this passage of Scripture, in this book of Scripture. And uh, as we look at that, I've already pointed out the five characteristics that I believe are laced throughout the book very quickly, I'll mention them again. A man of God will find himself in constant trouble because we're fighting powerful enemies. <clears throat> the man of God will center his ministry on what counts, the scriptures, Christ, and the gospel. The man of God will understand the dangers that surround him. That's what we're going to talk about right now. 
the man of God will be convinced of the transforming power of the word of God, which we'll talk about right after lunch. And finally, the man of God will fight the good fight. Of all the fights to fight, they will fight the good fight. We want to finish the course. We want to complete our race. We want to fight the good fight. In order to do that, we're going to have to face the fact that we're surrounded by great opposition. Uh, one of the most powerful and dangerous forms of opposition is the uh, destruction of false teachers and those in error. And they were prevalent in New Testament times. You, you really can't go to any epistle, probably any of the Gospels, most of the Bible period, and not see false teachers that are prominent there and being challenged by the Word of God. But what a world we live in now. I mean, with, with the internet and the media and all the forms of reaching out, uh, every false ism imaginable is available for everybody to just open up and do a Google search and find immediately some kind of heresy. We live in unprecedented times and difficult times, so we need to be aware of how to deal with false teachers and false isms. So I want to do that with you today. <clears throat> Paul gives Timothy some very uh, important and practical instructions concerning this. And the very first one is this. We need to fight this battle on our home field. Uh, on our home field. We need to take advantage of our home field. Now, a lot of you are into sports. Uh, some of you even have sports ministries. And one of the things that anybody in sports has recognized that if you play on your home field, your, your own arena, you'll win more games. Even if they're identical to wherever you might go, the home field advantage is very prominent and observable in sports. I think the same thing is true of, of serving Christ, of working and ministering with these, especially with false teachers. We should operate on our, with our home field advantage. Now keep that in mind as we press on because the, the, the home field for the false teachers is ruinous. It destroys lives. If we play on their home field, you don't know what that is yet. If we play on their home field, we're taking a great chance of coming to ruin. As a matter of fact, look at the devastation that comes about here, going down to chapter 2 and verse, let's, let's pick it up at verse uh, 14. He says, remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. I want to give you a number of characteristics of, uh, of what false teachers do, the devastation that they bring about in the life of the child of God. And many people believe, well, you know, the big issues are these more pragmatic issues of, of living life and so forth. The, the big issue scripturally is what we believe. And if we believe false things, we live false lives. And the thing that undermines living out truth are all these false isms. And notice the first thing he says about these, these false teachers is what they teach is useless and it's ruinous. It's useless. It doesn't accomplish anything of profit, but it also ruins those who are under their influence. I've seen that more times in my ministry than I care to, to know about. A number of years ago, uh, I was involved, uh, when I was in my first came to our church, I had a good pastor friend at another church in town. We're kind of like sister churches. We really did a lot together, loved each other. Uh, at that time, um, uh, the church was doing, that church was doing very well. It was growing. 
It was, it, was, uh, it was a good ministry. And then a man came to that church who began to bring in some, some not necessarily false do- doctrine per se, but some false twists and, some, and pushing some theology. And then he began to gather people to his team and his side, and he began to challenge the leadership of the church. And before long, that church split, not once, not twice, but three times. It went from a church that was bumping up about 200 people to 25 people. And it never really recovered to, to a full degree after all, that's been 25 years. And in many ways, and many of those people that left, their lives had never been the same. Uh, some have, some came to our church and they, they grew, some didn't, didn't grow. Others, other church, some never went back to church at all. They were ruined by these false teachings. It was, it was, it was ruinous to them. In verse 16, it leads to further ungodliness. Verse 16, he says, but avoid worldly and empty chatter for it will lead to further ungodliness. Uh, ungodliness is, of course, the opposite of being godly. These were the progressives. Notice the word lead. These are the word the progressives. These were the people on the cutting edge of being cool. They knew all the right lingo. They knew the right media. Uh, and you'll find that in, in so many of these false isms, they have mastered the media. That's how they're getting their people. That's how they're drawing people to themselves. Uh, they're, they're out there with fresh stuff and, and exciting stuff and the old dusty theologies in our churches just don't measure up to a lot of that for a lot of people. And so we have these fads and these books. It, I, don't, I don't think you'd under, unless you're into it, unless you're looking around, it's unimaginable how many hundreds of even thousands of books that roll off the presses every year that are Christian books. And yet so many of those books are only Christian in name. So many of them are, 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 are a muddled mess of, of the ideas of people, false teaching, a little scripture, a little proof texting. So much of it is false stuff. Uh, many people have pointed out one of the most dangerous places for a Christian to go is to a, to a Christian bookstore. They're just full of stuff. Go to, go to a bookstore at the, at the airport you'll always see a stand of Christian books right on, if, right on the front are the worst case scenarios, the Joel Osteens uh, and, and various ones along that line that, that are false teachers are right out front and people lap those fads and those books up. <clears throat> Thirdly, it'll lead to, it'll spread. And he says in verse 17, it'll spread like gangrene. Gangrene's an ugly thing, isn't it? Uh, if you get gangrene and you really get it, there's hardly anything you can do to stop it except amputate. And that's an awful thing. It's radical surgery to save the life of someone. And you, we need to take this, this statement very uh, seriously because if you allow into your church or into your own mind or into your family or into your woman's group or whatever, you allow in some false isms, some false twists, that kind of teaching begins to spread. And it doesn't just spread in a benevolent way, it spreads in a destructive way. It's like gangrene. And, it has to, and if you're going to stop it, you have to rat, take radical surgery, and that's painful, that's difficult. We, we need to know what's going on so that we can stop these things before they get infested in our churches. I said this yesterday, and I say it all the time at our church, I want to, be, I want to know what's going on before my people get emotionally invested in it. Because once a group of ladies, a group of men, a youth group, whatever, get invested in some ism, 
once they emotionally are into it and we try to correct it, they get mad. They think we're taking away their candy and that we're negative and judgmental and mean-spirited when we're really trying to help them. So we need to stop that kind of stuff as quickly as we possibly can. And that means we know what's going on in our own hearts, our own thinking, and in our churches as well. And then verse 18, he says that this uh, false teaching will upset the faith of some. Men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, they will upset the faith of some. There was a particular brand of false teaching here dealing with the resurrection, but we can generalize this. These false teaching upset the faith of some. The question here by the commentators is, is he talking about Christians or non-Christians? Is he saying that, that somehow we, we, dis, we are upsetting the faith of unbelievers and, and pulling them away from the gospel? Is it saying he's talking about believers or maybe a, a combination of both? Um, I don't know for sure on that, but, it's, but to say this, that the, in our world right now, there's an interesting phenomenon taking place. Probably you've heard of it. If you're younger, you definitely have. It's called deconstruction. And that used to be a term describing postmodernism out of France and so forth. It's, it's, got, a, it's got a different name now, different meaning now. It describes those people that claim to be Christians in the past, some very prominent Christians, who now have not only left the faith, but in many cases are doing everything in their power to destroy the faith in other people. Probably the most well-known is, is Joshua Harris, who wrote I Kissed Dating Goodbye uh, many years ago. He was a prominent pastor for years, seemed to be on the right track in a lot of things. Uh, and yet this man has deconstructed. He has turned against the Lord. He's divorced his wife. He now has a ministry to try to deconstruct other cr Christians and ruin their faith. What a great ministry that is, huh? And this man at one point claimed to be a child of God. Only the guess the Lord knows about that. But we have to be careful with these things. And then finally, verse 23, these kinds of things lead to quarrels. <clears throat> verse 23 says this, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. Uh, most quarrels in, among God's people in the church and so forth, really aren't over eternal matters. Uh, the ones that divide a church are not usually over doctrine. If you don't agree with the doctrine of this church, you can go to another church uh, that agrees with you. Most doctrine, most issues are not over that. It's over secondary issues. It's over uh, issues that, uh, uh, you know, the building itself, the music, the color. There, most of us uh, dealt with some of these things during the pandemic and different people siding up over all sorts of issues. Uh, these, these were, this was a trick of the devil, folks. I don't know how many of you got invested in that, but that was a trick of the devil to pull apart the unity of the body of Christ over issues that were not primary, that were not central to the gospel and central to Christ and central to the word. And uh, we're still feeling the repercussions of a great deal of that. Well, concerning these people, concerning those people that want to come in and deconstruct, I want to come in and do, bring false teachings, what does he say to do? Well, he says uh, in verse 16, he says this, but avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. Avoid. 
avoid these people. Now, there's a sudden, a, a rather subtle key of distinction between verse 15 and verse 17 I want to bring to your attention that we'll talk about off and on for the rest of the day. In verse 15 that we'll come back to later this afternoon, great verse of scripture, it says, be diligent to present yourselves. Don't be, don't be an expert in speculations and false teachings. Be an expert in being approved as God's workmanship who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. We don't need to be an expert on all false things, but we do need to be an expert on the Word of God. Uh, one of the gentlemen asked me between, uh, between the sessions, uh, since I do with a lot of reading and writing on these uh, false teachings, how do I keep myself from becoming uh, jaded or whatever you want to call it and get all messed up with this stuff? The only way I can do it is because most of my ministry is proclaiming the Word of God. Uh, it's not dealing with the false things. It's understanding God's Word and proclaiming God's Word. This other thing's a side issue. And I told this gentleman, I, because of my discernment ministry, I run in circles sometimes with people that all they have is a, is a discernment ministry. They don't, they're not pastors. They're not proclaiming. They're not teaching somewhere. They're just doing discernment ministries. And many of those people do get jaded. And many of them are looking for, for something under every rock. And sometimes they want to find something under every rock so they have something to write about. Those people wear me out, really. I, don't, I, I know them. I know many of them by name. I, I travel with them. I, I've spoken with them. They wear me out because all they want to talk about is what is wrong. I don't want to talk about what is wrong more than I have to. What I do want to talk about is what is right. I want to accurately handle the word of truth. And we'll talk about that more next time. But here's what I want to go to now. Go to verse 17. Concerning the false teachers... Their talk will spread like gangrene. Now, the New American Standard, 1995, is my favorite translation. That's what I'm using here. I don't know what you're using or if you notice that, but that's what I use. And I like it better. I don't, like, I don't particularly like the 2020. just came out. It's more gender inclusive. Gender inclusive. I don't like that. I, I don't, and the legacy that just came out that put out by MacArthur's group is good, but I don't think good enough for me to change. So that's where I am, okay? Just in case you care. I don't think you care, okay? <laughs> but I said that to say this. The word in verse 15 for word, word of truth, is logos. The word for talk in verse 17 is logos. The New American 1995 let me down here. Because I didn't see on the English page that are talking about the same thing, words. Now, some translations, even the King James, I think, translates it word. That's a better thing. Write it in your Bible if you haven't noticed it. In other words, there's two kinds of communication out there, two kinds of words, two kinds of logoses in this, in this speaking of the Word of God. There is the word that we need to cut straight, the inspired message of God's Word, and there's the talk of man. We have God talk and man talk. And the great danger is man talk is prevalent everywhere. So people, what, all these people writing these books, so many of them are not exegeting scripture. They're looking at some issues, some philosophies, some, some pragmatism, and they're giving us their best shot at the philosophies of, that they're putting out there. But are they going, drawing from scripture? 
And so much of the false teaching disguises itself not in this ugly heresy, but simply in the opinions and philosophies of people that, don't, that are not on par with God talk. And that's what he's warning about here. The man talk of verse 17 can spread like gangrene. You be careful with that. You get back to the God talk and you exegete it properly and carefully. And so as he talks about that, Paul is not discouraging proper theological discussion and even debate, but he is concerned about elevating the words of people to the standards of Scripture. And we must never do that. And so when we come up with an idea, we need to be able to back that from the Word of God. So don't get sidetracked by those kind of discussions. Be a man who, who understands the truth and studied it hard and exegeted properly. I turn now to one of my favorite theologians, Winnie the Pooh. In the original Winnie the Pooh book, chapter 8, there's a very interesting story that I think fits very well here. The whole gang, Christopher Robbins and, and all the little animals, uh, decide one day, when, like they always do, chattering about this, that, and the other, that they wanted to go find the North Pole. But they didn't know what the North Pole even was. But that didn't stop them, of course. So they jump up and start running around the woods looking for the North Pole. And they're wandering around, they're talking, and they blah, blah, blah. They don't know what they're doing. And the little kangaroo, Roo, I think his name is, falls in a stream of water. And so he's about to drown. And so Winnie the Pooh picks up a stick on the ground, sticks it in the water, and pulls Roo to safety. They're all excited. He saved his life and so forth. And then Christopher Robin turns to Winnie and he says, where did you get that pole, Winnie? And Pooh says, well, I don't know. I just found it. I just found it on the ground. And Christopher Robin said, you found the North Pole. There it is. It's in your hands. So they discuss it a while and determine that's what it is. That is the North Pole. And so they stick it in the ground and they put a sign on it. The sign says North Pole, discovered by Pooh. Pooh found it. And they all went home happy. They had found the North Pole. Now, how does that fit with what I'm saying? Because every time you turn around, somebody says, I found it. I found a new spirituality. I found the newest fad. I found the newest way to have a church. I found this, I found that. And everybody is saying they're doing it and they don't even know what they're looking for. Many times because they they haven't turned to scripture to see what scripture has to say with that. So I think Winnie the Pooh is helpful. When you're looking for people who say, I found it, Find out what they found. Do they even know what they're talking about? Have they gone back to scripture at all? Okay, we need to battle on our home turf. Did you get it? What is our home field advantage? The word of God. That's where we're sharp. That's where we're good. That's where we have the advantage. If we get down on their turf and play on the, on the field of the false teachers and man talk, we don't have the advantage. If we can't say, thus saith the Lord, here's what the scripture says, then we are at a disadvantage right away and we'll lose the battle. What does the word say? Our home field advantage is the word of God. Be experts in it. Secondly, we must prepare ourselves for a battle. Okay? Do not, if we're not to battle on our, we are to battle on our home turf, but we also must prepare for battle. We do that in two ways. Chapter 2 and verse 20, we must do it by cleansing or purifying. 
Verse 20 says this, Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he'll be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. So he says to Timothy, uh, if you're going to be a man of God, if you're going to do the work I want you to do, then you're going to have to be clean. He's talking here about the church. I believe within the church, we have people there. Uh, Is he talking about believers and unbelievers in the church? Or is he talking about uh, Christians who are not doing well or some doing well, some don't? Or maybe in the context, true and false teachers that can infiltrate a local church or the church at large. Whatever the identity, the point is clear. If you're going to be a vessel, vessel suitable for the master's use, verse 21, then you must cleanse yourself of certain things. Purity will determine how you live for the Lord far better than your giftedness. It doesn't matter how gifted you are if you're not pure and clean before God. And so he's talking here about the china, bringing out. He talks about you can bring out the good china, gold, silver, china, or you can bring out the earthenware, which they, they use for garbage and excrement, and they threw it out the back door. But the vessels that are, the Lord uses are clean vessels. Now, having said that, he moves on to verse 22. So I want you to be clean. How are you going to do that? Now, flee from useful lusts. Let's start there. Almost everybody who reads that statement jumps to the conclusion he's talking about sexual things because we're to flee from immorality in other texts of Scripture, right? So that's not a bad application, but it's not the context. He's not been talking about morality. He's not been talking about sexual things. And he speaks of youthful things. So he's talking about a tendency of young people that may not be, uh, may be true of all people, but may be prominent with young people. What is it then that he might be talking about in our context? I think he's talking about the idea that, that young people often, and you'll see this on Twitter, you'll find it in the media, young people really like a good argument. So much of what I hear from my young adults who are listening to the Twitters type of things is hearing all these different debates and arguments online about all these things people want to talk about, and some of it's very caustic. Some of it's very harsh and divisive and hard. And he's saying here, flee from that stuff. Your job is not to win the debate. Your job is to be clean before God. Flee from that kind of thing. When I was going to Moody Bible Institute, there was a heresy running around that had infiltrated the Moody students when I was there. And a number of our students got caught up in it. Uh, So much so that that the administration... uh, uh, had some special sessions. They brought their theology teachers out to, uh, to try to correct, but a number of these young people were not correctable. I remember very vividly that one of my better friends that I lived on the same floor at the dorm there, and he and I decided to debate uh, this issue, this theology. So we sat down in a boys, one of the boys' lounges, and he was there and I was here, and we began to debate. And we grew a crowd. The whole lounge was full by the time we were done. And nobody said anything but us, he and I, going back and forth. He argued from his experience and all, how wonderful this cult was that he was getting involved in. I argued from Scripture and proved over and over that this was an unbiblical cult and that he was getting invested in. When it was all said and done, there was no question I won the debate. And he admitted that. 
He says, Gary, you are very good at this. You are very good at, at understanding scripture and, and putting it together and debating, but your spirit is awful. Your attitude of, of, of harshness just is awful. And I never forgot that. Because it's one thing to win a debate. It's another thing to win a friend. I won the debate. I lost my friend. And he went right over to that cult. Because that cult was showing him an acceptance and love that we weren't showing him. And I didn't show him. I think that's what he's talking about here. Don't get involved in trying to win debates and, and putting people down and making sure that, that they know they're wrong. Flee from that kind of attitude. Be clear on the teaching. Help people, correct people. But remember, do it in love. Speak the truth in love, as it says in the book of Ephesians. Timothy is told to flee. You and I should flee from these very type of attitudes and so forth. I find a lot of Christian leaders get caught up in this, that, or the other simply because they don't flee from some of these things. Now, while you're fleeing, you need to pursue. So drop down to verse 22 and see what that is. You can never flee properly if you don't pursue something. So he tells us what to pursue. So this is what I want to encourage you to look at with me. Flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. This is a highly neglected verse of scripture. I really want to help you with this. I want to point these things out to you. Notice that what we as men of God should pursue. First of all, righteousness, which I believe could be translated harmony of God with God. We need to be right before God in harmony with God, walking in the footsteps of God. Righteousness, not just righteousness of salvation, he already had that, but righteous living before God, harmony with God. Secondly, pursue faith, or that is confidence in God. You can be a Christian for many years, and you can believe in God, and you can trust God for the future, but you don't have confidence in God working in your life, and you lack that confidence. And he says, pursue that confidence, that trust in him. Fourth, third, Pursue love. This is, this is the word agape. It's the love that we have for one another. The, agape, the, the love we have for other Christians. The love we even have for our enemies. And that's missing in the hearts of many Christians today, especially now with all the, all the garbage going around in our country, in our governments, among different groups. Uh, we should be distinguished by love. We should be pursuing love for one another and then finally, peace, that's harmony with people. Undisturbed, perfect understanding uh, with people. Not that we always agree that we're pursuing peace with one another. Folks, we pursue the things that interest us, don't we? It, we have no problem pursuing something if it interests us. We have guys in our church that love guns. You don't have to get them going to talk about guns. They all, that's all they want to talk about. They love it. When I was at Moody, I had one of the most envious jobs on the planet. Uh, for two years, I was a security guard of sorts. I sat at the desk from 3 o'clock in the morning to 8 o'clock in the morning of the girls' dormitory. 
That's a great job. I don't know what you guys are thinking here. That's a good job for a young man. You know, I'm sitting here at this, this desk, and the, 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 the great thing that happened was about 8 or 7.30, all the girls started coming down for breakfast, and I got to flirt, you know. So I thought that was a great job. But even more than that, I could find out, because I had at that desk, this old card file system. They didn't have computers. Old card file system, and I could look at the schedule of any girl I was interested in. And probably a stalking today. I could, <laughs> I, I probably be put away somewhere. But, um, but you know, I, I didn't even think about that. There was a one girl in particular named Marcia that I really felt something of, and she didn't like me. She kind of turned her head the other way at me. She didn't like me. I was going to win her over. So I found out from the schedule where she was all day long. And amazingly, I showed up all day long. Wherever she was, I was there. Hi, Marcia. How you doing? Bye, bye. Ultimately, see, I didn't have any problem pursuing her because I liked her. And ultimately, I married her. I'm not still sure she likes me, but, but I, I won her over. Eventually, I pursued her. Nobody had to tell me, you should pursue that girl. What's wrong with you? I had no problem. You pursue what you like. You pursue what you're interested in. And he's telling us here that we should pursue these four essentials. And not, and not only that, there's one more thought here, which we miss easily. He says in, in verse 22, with those who call on the Lord with a pure heart. You know what that is? That's the church of Christ. Again, many, many people are abandoning the church. Many people are going to church online. We need to be pursuing these things of God with one another, encouraging one another, being encouraged by others, sharing our gifts, being gifted by others. We need, we're going to become like the people we hang with. And if we're not pursuing all these things in good company with those who love the Lord as we do, we're not going to go very far. So pursue these things and pursue them in a fellowship that is also pursuing these things together. Okay, so far we've seen that in dealing with these false teachers, we don't battle with them on their home turf. We battle on our turf. Secondly, we need to be prepared by cleansing and pursuing. And now thirdly, we must properly correct the opposition. Properly per, per, uh, correct the opposition. Going down to verse 23, he says, But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. So we'll stop there for just a moment. This is interesting. He's already told us, and notice, he seems almost contradictory. We are to avoid worldly and empty chatter, verse 16. We are to refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, verse 23. We are to avoid false teachers, chapter 3, verse 5. But now we're called to correct someone who is living falsely. In other words, don't waste your time on stupid and ignorant issues that have nothing to do but will do nothing but stir up controversy. Don't waste your time on false teachers who, don't, who are not interested in truth, but devote much of your time with those who are correctable. Okay, I get asked a lot in the past, especially when I write articles about somebody or some movement, and they say, have you talked to so-and-so? Have you, have you gone and talked with Rob Bell? 
or Brian McLaren or somebody else. First of all, I couldn't talk to them if I wanted to. And secondly, if they're public her heretics, then we can deal with them in public. And that's how you have to deal with it. I'm not worried about these massive false teachers. I'm concerned about their disciples, people that are being drugged into their false teachings that I might be able to help and correct. And I think that's where you and I should be as well, correctable people. And I want to look here at this servant of Christ, this man of God, and there are certain qualifications we must have if we're going to be able to correct those that are drifting into false teachings. Number one, we're not to be quarrelsome. We're now down to verse 24. The Lord's bondservant, the man of God, must not be quarrelsome. Once again, we're not out to win an argument. First uh, Timothy 3, verse 3, concerning elders, says they must not be pugnacious, men who love a fight. That's not a quality for church leadership. Secondly, they are to be kind to all. Uh, this is a word, this word for kindness is the word used of a nursing mother of her child. And so there's a kindness, but it's kind to all. I, I don't know about you, but some people I have no problem being kind to. But other people are not so easy. And yet I'm admonished by this passage that my kindness should, be, should go out to the socially awkward people. My kindness should go out to people that don't particularly like me. My kindness should go out to people that, that you know, I just don't really fit with. I have kindness to all if I'm going to do his work in, in this regard. And thirdly, able to teach. We're not all preachers. We don't all stand before a crowd of people and teach that way. But we all are teachers. We're teaching somebody. Maybe it's our family, it's our friends, it's our, our wives, whatever. We are instructors with our lives and with our words. We need to know what to teach. And then patient when wronged. Have you uh, been wronged by somebody? Yes, you have. Will you be wronged by somebody soon again? Probably. Uh, we are wronged by people on a regular basis. And our natural reaction is what? Retaliation. We naturally want to lash back. And yet we're told here to be patient when we're wronged. I like, I like again, Paul Tripp, who spent his whole life in counseling, said concerning his counselees, he says this, the counselee will always turn their sin on you. He says if, if their sin is anger, they'll, they'll get angry at you. If their sin is distrust, they won't trust you. If their sin is lying, they'll lie to you and lie about you. Well, why would anybody want to mess with such people? Well, because of these passages like this that said we're kind to all and we want to correct them for the, for the Lord's sake. Patient when wrong. Now with these qualities in hand, let's move on to what he has to say as to what we are to do, how we are to correct. In verse 25, with gentleness, so we start with gentleness, not harshness, not a mean spirit. We start with love. We correct those who are in opposition. These are people not on our team. They don't agree with us, maybe doctrinally, maybe with uh, sinful issues, but, we're, but with gentleness and humbleness, we go for, to them in, in a caring spirit. He goes on, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. Now here we have the, the work of God in tandem. Only God can grant repentance. 
The re repentance is a work in the heart and the souls of people. You cannot bring people to repentance. Only God can do that. But this passage has already told us we are to correct those people in error. Therefore, the Lord is using you as an instrument to bring about that repentance that only he can bring. And so we, we were working here then with God to try to correct somebody, to bring them back to the light, to bring them back to where they need to be. And we're working with God who is the only one capable of actually bringing that about. You will never bring repentance in the life of anybody, but you can be an instrument that God uses for that to bring the light to them and that might grant to them the knowledge of the truth. How important that is. A couple of years ago, I walked out of our, our worship center, walked over to our activity center, which is right next door, opened the door, walked in. Immediately, there's no lights on. I immediately fell over top of a, a riser that somebody had placed there in the middle of the floor that I didn't know about. Well, I went tumbling and rolling down the floor for miles, it seemed like. <laughs> I'm sure it was one tumble. And I went over, found the lights, turned it on, I knew exactly the problem. I knew exactly what I tripped over and why. But without the lights, I couldn't see. I needed those lights. Well, we are the ones bringing the lights to these folks that don't see their error. They don't see the direction they're going and how harmful it is. And so we are those people. Now look at this. Here's the reason why that's necessary. Verse 26, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. What a powerful verse a scripture that says, notice these people he's talking about are out of their minds and prisoners of Satan. The devil has both drugged them and ensnared them. Isn't that a pitiful picture? These are people that perhaps are Christians, perhaps not, it's hard to call, but they have been drugged and blinded and imprisoned and ensnared by the devil and therefore they are unable to discern right from wrong and how to live for God as they should. So we are dealing with people who are prisoners of war. They're caught in a trap. And behind the scenes there's great spiritual battles going on and the Lord has called us as men of God to be involved in that. To, to direct and to to help them understand, to correct them when they're wrong. And uh, I left something over here before, and we're going to take some questions, but I left something I wanted to bring to you because I found this very interesting years ago. So I just thought I'd share it with you. A number of years ago, I was in Brazil, and I was doing some seminars and stuff there and preaching. And uh, in Brazil, they tell you all the time, do not drink the water. And you know why for that. Okay, even, even washing your hand or brushing your teeth, you've got to be very, very careful with that. So when I travel, I travel with it, with, uh, you know, my travel stuff. And so I was getting ready to brush my teeth. I'm going to use some water from a, a jug on that. And I pulled out of my case uh, a, a tube. But I'd also been having some problems with uh, allergies, some itching stuff. And I pulled out, not my toothpaste, but something else, some hydrocortisone. I put it on my toothbrush. And I began brushing away. Now, immediately, I recognized they're very similar in size. I recognized immediately this was not toothpaste. This was something different. 
Not because I'd ever tasted cortisone before, I had a cortisone, but because I knew that what, what toothpaste tastes like. I know error because I know truth. And that's the only reason. Now there's one advantage of that, my teeth have never itched since then. <laughs> uh, so we talk, we're talking about these false isms and so forth. So I'm gonna take any questions or comments you might have, uh, either on what I talked about, which is more general, maybe some subject uh, that you're interested in. And uh, we'll see if we can address that.